Our very existence depends on this. Black strength. Strength that has carried us for decades, but is undermining an important aspect of our humanity and feeding in on itself. Being strong all the time took away our ability to speak about our weaknesses, our sadness, our mental illnesses. This silence is killing us. Welcome to another edition of the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Black Doctor Speak is your source for vetted, accurate information on African-American health from some of the nation's top doctors and is sponsored by the African-American Wellness Project. And welcome today to the Wellness Watch Black Doctor Speaks, the podcast uh, and the video Facebook Live. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, as always, I'm with Dr. Noah Bliana. She is the director of the very fine and now very famous Bruce Community Health Center. Uh, thanks to her effort and the effort of her staff, they have done yeoman's work in our community uh, with some of the leading programs from around the country. But we're going to talk to you about what's going on now. And I'm going to start out with an old expression my grandmother used to say, I told you so. Uh, remember when we did our podcast about two months ago? We said they were letting, lightening up a little too fast. What do you think? Absolutely. Uh, we told them. Um, we are no doubt, um, you know, having a surge of cases. And unfortunately, it looks like we're having kind of a surge on top of a surge. We hadn't really come down in terms of cases from BA 2.12.1. And then here comes BA 5. And so it's like one was coming down and the other one's going up. And so as a result, we kind of never came down and we plateaued too high. And now we're on the way back up again. So this is definitely unwelcome news because BA5 is very, very contagious. It's like measles level contagious, and um, it is avoiding some of our prior immunity. So people are getting reinfected fairly quickly. So we definitely have high rates of transmission, uh, and it is concerning because this is summer. And of course, we anticipate winter will be even bigger. Uh, I think one of the things, questions that people ask you, um, Dr. Abelard, is that what's the big deal? I mean... I don't know anybody who's got it this time who's in the hospital. I mean, nobody died that I know uh, from this particular strain of the disease. Uh, what's the big deal? Why shouldn't we just let just let things roll and let everybody get it? Yeah, well, unfortunately, uh, people are going to the hospital and people are dying. Um, we're losing now upwards of 400 people per day in the United States. And if we're deciding that's not a big deal, then we're saying it's okay for us to lose 150,000 people a year to a transmissible uh, born pathogen. That's, that, that doesn't feel like a good state for us to be uh, accepting. So I think it is pretty concerning and hospitalizations are in fact going up right now and they are, you know, increasing at a rate that is very concerning at this point in the pandemic, despite the fact that you're right, we have, you know, we have vaccines, we have treatment, but unfortunately we're still losing. But the vaccines and the treatment, I mean, I'm just being the, the devil's advocate, the vaccine and the treatments don't seem to be um, impacting the infectious nature of this B5 variant. I mean, uh, people say, well, I got vaccinated, I got boosted twice and I still got COVID. I mean, uh, is the infection worse now in people who um, are not vaccinated? Because I don't see them complaining too much about this either. Yeah. So right now in the state of California, you're about nine times more likely to die if you're unvaccinated compared to those who are boosted. 
um, and about eight times more likely to go to the hospital. So still very significant protection from the vaccine from severe illness and death. But you're absolutely right. It's not stopping transmission. So you can still catch it. Um, but remember, the goal of the vaccine always was to stop the severe outcomes. And unfortunately, it's just not stopping transmission. And we never should have relied on it alone to stop transmission. That's really not how this is supposed to work. We should have done all the other mitigation measures and not drop them so fast. And that was really, um, I think, a failure of communication and leadership in that sense. And so I think we do need to be concerned about it and not just um, death and hospitalization, but also this post-COVID and long COVID. Uh, life expectancies have dropped. And some of it is increases in heart attacks and strokes. And many of those are happening, you know, in the months um, following a COVID infection. And then long COVID is impacting people's quality of life and it's disabling people as well. And remember, every time you catch COVID, because it's not like you get it once and you're done, you can keep catching mm -hmm. it. And then every time you catch it is another opportunity for a bad outcome or for long COVID. Yeah, you know, what's interesting. I mean, uh, have you, had, you haven't had COVID yet. You know, I'm ducking and dodging for the last couple of years. And then I won an award from a very distinguished organization uh, for my work on COVID. And that's where I got the COVID infection. So I would say in my own instance, the original um, infection probably occurred way back in December of 2019 when I was in Times Square for two weeks and took a cruise the next month. I didn't realize I was cruising with the bug. Uh, I was looking for COVID instead of it looking for me. And I think I had it then. And ever since then, I've had some additional respiratory issues. Uh, and also, it took a long time before things tasted the way they were supposed to taste. Uh, and I, so I, I think this long haulers thing is going to be a big deal. It's going to be a big deal for the country because of the amount of money it's going to cost to take care of people who are disabled or incapacitated, uh, they say, by, um, by uh, COVID. They say it causes brain fog. My wife says I would never know that. Uh, that would be very little difference in some of the things that I'm doing. But uh, I do think that the long haulers are going to be just as much of a problem. I think an even bigger problem, and really for me as a pediatrician, is that this uh, COVID vaccine for children has really not taken off. Uh, less than a third of the of the people in the country have gotten it, uh, and it's a little high, a little less, 24% of African-American children have been vaccinated. And I think now that it's down to vaccinating infants, I don't know anybody, any infant, any parent in my practices who really wanted to get uh, the vaccine for their infants. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's there's a number of things, but I'll just say in, in general, right, children are supposed to have decades of quality life ahead of them. And so uh, it's not to say we're not worried about adults, but when it comes to our children, I think we really, really need to um, approach these things with seriousness and care. Um, this is now a vaccine preventable death, certainly, um, and the vaccines are preventing severe outcomes and hospitalization, and we don't want our children to be ending up at the hospital. I think we shouldn't underestimate the fact, uh, first of all, we have lost you know, over 1,300 children in this country to SARS-CoV-2. It's become now one of the leading causes of death among children. This is not acceptable for us to allow something that is vaccine preventable to be a leading cause of death in this country. So I think we need to take that seriously. But I think the other thing is when we look at, you know, 40, 50,000 children having been hospitalized, that can have long lasting consequences and be a traumatic experience for a child to be in the hospital for a week or more. 
And so we really want to do everything we can to prevent these things. And the vaccines have proven to be safe. They're effective at preventing the severe outcomes. And we need to protect, you know, that quality of life um, that we want our children to be able to enjoy for decades to come. And there's frankly just too much we still don't understand about COVID. And so we want to do whatever we can to prevent them and reduce the chances of them catching it. Well, you know, I'm glad that, you know, I asked you that question almost like a rhetorical question, because I'm struggling with what messaging to give to parents that will be effective in trying to get them to get their children vaccinated. I think that uh, we we see, I try to tell them, you know, I try to explain to people that maybe 25 years ago, if you came in my office, I would be seeing 60 to 70 patients. Uh, and now because of the advent, advent of a number of vaccines, which are mandated now by uh, the state, uh, you know, 20, 25 patients is a big day. Do you think we should mandate this COVID vaccine for um, for children? And is it ever going to happen? Oh, I try to stay away from this mandate topic, Dr. Lenore, because it's gotten so political and, and challenging. Um, I think that, you know, when it comes to uh, requirements for entry into school, um, we are talking about, um, you know, how are we thinking about the public, the entire school community, not just the individual child. And so mandates are difficult because, you know, on an individual level, it's true that getting the COVID vaccine is not going to necessarily stop your child from catching COVID. It's going to protect them from severe outcomes. So one argument is, well, let me worry about that. Um, on the other hand, we know that it definitely reduces the chances of catching it and transmitting it. And so if we can do what we can to squash it, that's what we should be doing. And certainly, if we now have, as I said, a leading cause of death um, that's vaccine preventable, that is considered unacceptable. I mean, in, an, in a developed country like the United States, to have even one child die from a vaccine preventable death is considered unacceptable. So if we're going to use that standard, which is the standard I think we've been using then yes, it should be mandated. Um, I think when you start to get into the politics and the legality around it, I think things have gotten so convoluted and so twisted up um, that I think it's really, really unfortunate. And I think unfortunately now we're in a situation of really just needing to appeal to people and their common sense around if you could prevent your child from suffering or even you know hospitalization or death, why would you not do that? We're talking with Dr. Noah Bliana. Uh, we are uh, on Black Doctor Speak, the podcast, and Facebook Live, the African American Wellness Project, um, and the Roots Community uh, Health Center. We're, we're discussing issues of the day. I want to uh, change the tone a little bit and I stop here uh, and take a quick break. I'm Dr. Mike Lenore, the health tip of the day. Black women go more often to the doctor for cervical cancer screening, but have lower rates of being informed of abnormal pap smear and contacted for follow-up treatment. This results in the delay in the diagnosis and treatment of several cervical conditions, especially cervical cancer. When you get a test from a doctor, make sure that at the next doctor visit, you ask for the result and what the next move should be. This message is sponsored by the African American Wellness Well, that's, that's uh, quite a piece. Were you surprised by that information? I was surprised. I was surprised. Of course, unfortunately, I wasn't surprised to hear about the higher rates, but I was surprised to hear more visits and less being informed of the diagnosis. That's just unacceptable. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, this happens a lot of times. You know, people get tests uh, and either they call and don't get the result or they forget to call or you, you, know, you forget to look for the test or it kind of gets lost. So 
uh, I would recommend that anybody, uh, especially if you have any procedure like a pap smear, that you write down that you've gotten this test and you write down the time you, to check with the office and you ask them when you think the result will be ready. And then you start calling. I know. Don't assume no news is good news. Don't assume mm-hmm. that. I think a lot of people assume that. Oh, they'll call me if there's something wrong. Well, some things do fall through the cracks. You yeah. need to be your best advocate. Well, you can find a YouTube uh, every day on something like that. I know that when I get my PSA, I mean, I'm all over it. I'm looking at it four or five times a day. I'm going into the quest or someplace <laughs> trying to get the result. Uh, and so, uh, but I think that this study, though, because of the implication of a positive uh, pap smear, uh, is uh, very significant because uterine cancer in African American women is now almost epidemic. And so, if you get a pap smear or you get any kind of procedure, uh, you get any kind of test, you write down when that test is supposed to be ready, uh, and you call. And especially if you're getting uh, something like a pap smear or a procedure uh, where that can have implications for colonoscopy or whatever it is, uh, biopsies. You know, these are things that uh, that I think lead to either uh, feast or famine. And so, consequently, this study was very surprising to me. I think that leads us into our discussion, obviously, of the implication of overturning Roe versus Wade. I saw a study from Duke University that said that um, that this means that that women in this country have the highest rates of maternal mortality already. Black women much higher uh, than white women. Nine percent for white women, fourteen percent for black women. But the implications of not being able to obtain an abortion will mean uh, that uh, an increase and death rates for black women of 33%. Um, I mean, that's just one of the things. What do you see happening now? Do you see the rallying cry sufficient to overturn the political windstorm that has become the Supreme Court? Yeah, you know, I I don't know how to answer on the political side of things. I think for me, you know, the reality on the ground is going to be that people are going to do what they have to do to survive and what they see is in the best interest of their, um, you know, of what is it they have to do. So either that means uh, an unsafe um, abortion, an illegal or unsafe uh, or traveling, um, which not everybody has the means to do. Um, so I could see this resulting in really significant disparities, just widening um, and just, you know, not to mention, I think, just a feeling of going backwards. And I think, you know, a feeling that um, we're having uh, fundamental rights stripped away. And it's just kind of hard to wrap your head around that people think that being told to wear a mask is uh, a loss of freedom. Uh, but then we'll turn around and take away a very basic right of a woman uh, to do what she sees fit with her own body. You know, it was interesting. I looked at the legislation. That's the first step in trying to make it the law that same-sex marriage uh, should be legal. But they also, I think we're aiming at Clarence when they said interracial marriage should also be legal as a reminder to him that, you know, man, you might be in the catbird seat there sitting around waiting uh, ruling on uh, in this way, and then all of a sudden looking up, and your right to marry who you want uh, will be uh, jeopardized. Uh, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> he's an interesting man. That's that's something we should talk about at some point in time. Uh, uh, you know, self hate is there? Is that is that is that a medical term? It so, might be internalized depression. Uh, yeah, we we can bring some behavioral health providers on here to have that conversation. 
Yeah, but do you see enough of a of a rallying cry across the country from women to make it an effective way uh, to at least reverse some of the more uh, stringent and restrictive laws in some of these states? Well, and I think it may be solved in a legal route. I think there have been some lawsuits filed already. And so, um, you know, I, I, I hope, you know, the rallying cry will be in multiple forms um, so that this can be overturned. Uh, look at what happened with uh, climate change. The bill that uh, uh, President Biden um, uh, put together on climate change, and look, things are burning up everywhere. I mean, it's like the end of days. You know, you know temperatures 100, 405. And I don't see many of us engaged in the environmental movement, even though I think it impacts us maybe more than other ethnic groups. I think that's true. I feel like environment has been seen as this sort of luxury uh, item, not, you know, and we all have a right to breathe clean air and have a clean, you know, planet. And uh, but I agree with you. We haven't been too involved in this, I think, because there's so many immediate things that threaten survival that it's hard to see that far out um, sometimes. Yeah. Um, but I agree with you. And I mean, there are people suffering at this point all over the world in places that are not equipped for this type of heat and weather. Um, and I'm sure I'm sure there's disparities happening in those areas as well. But at least, you know, and on the African continent, I think everyone's uh, prepared and equipped um, but in many other parts of the world, I think um, it's, you know, a struggle. Yeah, you know, but if it's hotter, if it gets hotter in Europe, it's going to get hotter in Africa as well. But I do think that if you look at the amount of pollution that we see, you know, around um, uh, in it, uh, what we call environmental justice, where they put all these uh, plants uh, around us and they put these uh, these dumps and toxic waste places. In fact, I found one of those foundries. They're not foundries, but the fuel places. and make gas uh, or near where we live, uh, we should be at the forefront of some of these discussions. And I think we really need as an ethnic group to be much more engaged in the issue on environmental health. Uh, interesting this week in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, a, uh, I guess it was an op-ed on unconscious bias. Uh, and finally, uh, we're starting to uh, recognize, at least, at least the country starting to recognize the impact of unconscious bias on the health of ethnic minority uh, people and women of color. Uh, what say you about unconscious bias? Um, you know, it's a thing. I think we all have it about something or other. Um, the problem is, is that when the people who are in power and the people who are in charge and the people who are most represented in medicine have it and it is resulting in poor health outcomes. And we know that that's a case. And we know that there's also conscious bias. There's just straight up racism. So when you add it all up together, um, it is a major, major contributor to the health disparities that we see. And but, you know, I think sometimes I guess what I would say is that sometimes I think, you know, we try to bring things down to the individual level. And that's important that we help people see where they may have um, biases that are impacting their care. But I think we also have to accept the fact that the systems themselves are um, really entrenched and there's so much built into our systems that is really, um, you know, maintains the status quo, maintains the inequities and the disparities. So I think it's good that we do our trainings and we have our you know, diversity and equity, you know, officers and people that are trying to get individuals to see where their um, biases are. I think that's always important for all of us. Um, but we're going to have to do a lot more than that if we think we're actually going to address systemic racism in healthcare. 
Yeah, well, you know, the systemic racism, I think, uh, is not going to change from the top down. I mean, no. each individual person has to deal with it as they encounter it. I think the big thing that we can do here, and when you talk about unconscious bias, we're talking about prejudice uh, against certain ethnic groups and gender. Uh, and even we as black physicians probably have some unconscious biases. Uh, but the the individual patient has to deal with it when they see it. That means when you get a healthcare that you think is disrespectful and unjust and um, and uh, not with the same quality as you expect, you need to deal with it right then, uh, because otherwise you don't expect the system to deal with it. It's almost like everything I see uh, now on in terms of health disparities is should be solved by uh, social determinants of health. Well, we got to wait for people to get food and decrease violence and housing. Before we get better, we're going to have a lot of problems. I mean, well, and you just said, you just talked about, you know, the neighborhoods and the polluters and the industry. I mean, this goes back, you know, I mean, this goes obviously to the beginning of this country. But I mean, even if you just look at redlining and systematically shutting out, you know, black people from economic opportunities and then coming into those same neighborhoods with polluting plants and having. factor for getting prostate cancer. I'm Dr. Michael Noor, the ethnic. Let me stop there. All right, so let me ask that question again. Uh, yeah, so we have to wait for the social determinants of health, I mean, uh, to be corrected uh, in order to reduce the differences between the health of black people and the health of other people. We've been waiting a long time. We're waiting for good housing and good food, uh, you know, a place of no violence. And if that's going to be the solution, uh, and we're going to focus on that instead of just trying to get the basic stuff done, uh, we're due for a long, hard ride as uh, black people and people of color and women, uh, because um, because these are factors that have been present for 400 years, and they're not going to be solved in my lifetime, and I'm not going to wait to get solved before I get the right medicine and the right treatment. Uh, we yeah. have to have some other way to, to deal with that. Uh, every article that I see about colon cancer, uterine cancer, every place, asthma, where uh, black people are suffering disproportionately, the solution seems to be deal with the social determinants of health. No, no, get me the right medicine. Get me a, a decent appointment. Follow me along. Measure me. You know, all those things need to be done uh, in proportion to the same uh, kinds of treatment that other ethnic groups get. And then, and then I'll deal with the social determinants as they come my way. But let's not make that the be-all and end-all for dealing with health equity. Well, we, we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. And that's the thing. It's like, we know we've never had the luxury of being able to just focus on just one thing. We have to focus on all the things. And so, um, you know, I'm glad that people are understanding uh, social determinants of health um, and how they contribute. Um, but, you know, that, like you said, I mean, these are things we just got done talking about the polluting plants and things like that that are in our communities. Those are communities that have been systematically redlined. Um, where people have been locked out of economic opportunity. So you're talking about, um, you know, it's not an abstract thing saying social determinants. These are by design that these things have been created. And those are things that actually have to be dismantled if we're going to deal with it. So I agree with you. I don't think they're going to happen in my lifetime. I think, um, you know, the systems are doing what they were designed to do in the first place. And so in the meantime, um, we do have to come up with our own solutions, you know, on an individual level and within our families and within our communities. And a lot of that does mean advocating for yourself when you go in to receive health care, making sure that you are getting the best treatment 
possible. But at the same time, we should be advocating, like you said, around environmental justice and around all of these other areas where the cars are just pretty much stacked against. Okay, well, I think we we, we spend um, most of our time. I think we've got the most of the issues on top of mind, but lots of other issues we need to deal with. I want to end with this. One of the things that I read, I, I, you probably you probably know this already, but you know the uh, American Heart Association has listed seven steps that you need to take to um, to be heart healthy. I mean, there's diet and exercise and the usual things, but this month they added sleep. I mean, so it's now eight simple things you need to do to be heart healthy. And they say you need six to eight hours of sleep. I can't remember last time I got six to eight hours of sleep. Really? I mean, how are you going to make yourself sleep six to eight hours? I mean, if I get five good hours, I mean, that's really a good night for me. Can you sleep longer than that? That's how you get so much done, Dr. Lenore. I sleep mm-hmm. seven hours every night. I, in fact, it doesn't matter what time I go to bed. I wake up seven hours later. And you don't take any, you know, none of these medicines or gummies or anything else. <laughs> Nothing you know, like that. Now, now, what is your procedure? Do you uh, do you have the uh, lights out, TV off, and all of that? Yes, I do try to do that. In fact, I really don't like any electronics in my room at all. I don't like things breathing, you know, electronics breathing in my air. I just <laughs> so I do like to have everything off and dark. It was funny, you know, my wife. Uh, and I have dinner. Well, we're pretty much the same, but she 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 sleeps seven. She gets the seven hours, but she likes to have things on. She likes to have the TV on, the radio on. I mean, I don't know what, what it does, because I have usually have them on, but she she doesn't mind. So that maybe that's why we've been married 36 years. We've been able at least to agree on that. Well, but the light is supposed to interfere with your sleep. So even if I do fall asleep with something on, I'll usually end up waking up and turning it off. Um, but I do think the light does interfere. It's supposed to interfere with getting deep sleep. With seven hours, I don't know what I would do. If I could <laughs> seven hours, I'd be more hyperactive than I am right now. I wouldn't mind two more hours of my day to do stuff, but I need my seven hours. <laughs> I got you. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. And thank the audience for joining us on this podcast, Black Doctor Speak and the Wellness Watches. Black Doctor Speak Facebook Live program. Uh, thank you again, uh, Doc. I'm Obliana, and we'll see you again. Uh, remember, health is your biggest asset, so protect it. If you enjoyed our show, please remember to hit the subscribe button so that new episodes are delivered directly to you every week, as well as rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, listening to our show is as simple as telling your Alexa, Siri, or Google to play the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Take care, everyone.